Teachers, please come next week. We'd like to pray for you as you start uh, a new year. And uh, women, we have a very special gathering next Saturday and would love to have you come and meet some new folks. You can sign up right there or see Kelly Spainhauer after the service. So please make a plan to come to that. Well, All Souls tries to offer spiritual pilgrims a safe place to ask hard questions about faith and doubt. And sometimes we call that process deconstruction. There are a lot of resources out there for deconstructing your faith, but there's not very many resources about rebuilding faith after you've gone through that tearing down period. And that's why we're spending four Sundays thinking together about what it means to rebuild faith. Suzanne Stelling offered us a brilliant and biblical way to think about rebuilding faith in the past two sermons. Uh, Honestly, I think it's the best teaching on the subject I've ever heard, and I strongly encourage you to uh, listen to those sermons. And so because there was so much good doctrine and content there, we thought that the next two uh, talks, sermons, would be stories about how two people in our church have kind of walked out this journey. So tonight I want to share with you my own journey with faith and doubt. And next week, Rob Scott will be sharing his journey. And Rob is the artist who came up with that beautiful graphic uh, that's behind me tonight. Well, I became a follower of Jesus on a warm spring night in 1976. I was a freshman at Worthington High School in Columbus, Ohio. And my friend Doug Martin invited me to a youth group at something called Fifth Quarter. Uh, they met after the football games, obviously. Uh, my motive was purely carnal. I had heard there were cute girls there, and that was the only reason I went. And I I don't remember what we talked about that night. I do remember that at the end of the night, Mr. Widows invited us to pray a prayer that went something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want to invite you into my life as my personal Savior and Lord. I don't remember at that time being particularly religious or tormented by guilt or anxious about dying or seeking meaning and purpose in my life. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me. And that night I knew I wanted to follow him the rest of my life. Well, Doug invited me to worship the following Sunday at Grace Brethren Church. And soon I was involved in the youth group. The youth minister, Pastor Bill, taught me how to take my first steps as a disciple. Uh, Pastor Jim was an incredible preacher. Some Sundays the sermons were so strong I would stay for the first and the second service. I especially remember the moving New Year's Eve foot washing services that included communion. And everything about that period, from the creation science seminar they offered uh, to uh, teaching on uh, gender, sexuality, the nature of Scripture, 
it just all made perfect sense. It all fit together. And I just remember feeling peaceful, secure. Uh, I had a place in God's world and in God's church. Well, my sophomore year in college, I took a course called New Testament Origins from Dr. Edmund Perry. And he was the chairman of the Department of History and Literature of Religions. And he was a tall Georgian with a gentle southern drawl who enjoyed finding the most fervent evangelical students in his classes and tormenting them. And I soon became his favorite target. And he challenged everything I believed. The nature of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the reality of hell, the purpose of the cross. And I would go back to my Bible study and, and, and say that I was being taught New Testament by the Antichrist. And I decided that I was going to uh, uh, lead the Antichrist to the Lord. And so I said, pray for me, guys. I'm going to go in. And so I went in and met with the Antichrist. And it did not go as I thought it would. I found him to be a warm and loving man who pastored me and then at the end asked me to pray for him. And we started to meet uh, for tea regularly. And Dr. Perry became, apart from my father, the most significant man who ever influenced my life. And that was extremely confusing because his theology was so different than mine. I didn't know what to do with it. Well, by the time I wrote my final exam, I just wasn't sure what, what I believed at all anymore. I don't know if you've had that experience. Oddly and ironically, at the same time, I felt called to the ministry. All I wanted to do was study the Bible, teach the Bible, and talk with people about discipleship. Well, Sandy and I were involved in a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, or CREW. And during my senior year, CREW's leadership asked me to speak at an annual spring retreat. And I don't remember what I spoke on, but I do remember a warm, golden, almost palpable glow over the room on Saturday night as the Spirit blessed the stumbling efforts of a rookie preacher. And I remember playing volleyball in the snow with this little band of believers and feeling that I loved them and wondering if I could spend the rest of my life doing something like this. Well, shortly after graduating from college in 1983, uh, I became a youth minister at Red Hell Lutheran Church in Tustin, California. And one evening after I'd taught a particularly confusing study on Second Peter, Sandy said gently, Honey, um, you, you don't know what you're doing. Um, we, we need to get training. And the following fall, we enrolled in seminary. And we enrolled in a wonderful seminary. The professors were pretty much all older, godly, kind white men who revered the Bible. And at the time, they saw theology as a discipline similar to engineering. Uh, the Bible records spiritual facts. If you apply the right scientific process, you can discern those facts and find certain answers to every faith question. 
And so we learned how to identify the correct answers and refute the wrong ones. And so the anxiety that I felt in Dr. Perry's doctoral class on anxiety, or rather on Tillich, <laughs> they go together for me. Uh, all of a sudden it was gone. And I felt secure and confident. And I entered the seminary filled with questions. I graduated filled with answers. I don't think the seminary teaches this way anymore, but 40 years ago they did. Well, we graduated in the May of 1987, and Sandy and I and several families started Fellowship Church in a basement. And we were one of the first churches to offer contemporary worship and small groups and verse-by-verse -verse preaching, and this seemed to meet a need. And uh, I remember at that time just this great sense of certainty and that the Bible was just clear and the answers were so clear and I felt very confident and bold and eager to point out error. Uh, I wrote a book critiquing false views of conversion that nobody published. I, uh, preached a, uh, I preached an entire series against the Catholic Church. I preached a sermon on biblical manhood as illustrated in the life of Robert E. Lee. I did. An elder told me he wished I'd focus more on Christ and less on controversy. And I remember thinking that he wanted to water down the gospel. Now, everything seemed to be going well. It's, it's when, when things are, people are growing and coming, it, everything sort of seems right. But I began questioning the one right answer engineering approach to the doctrine I learned in seminary because I found myself starting to disagree with some of my teachers. It was very disturbing. I didn't know quite what to do with it. Um, I had been taught that a believer must accept that the earth was created in six literal days. And then I read thoughtful books by great evangelical minds who believed that you could believe in both both evolution and the inspiration of Scripture. I'd been taught that women must not teach or lead in the church, but then my own study led me to believe that the passages forbid, forbidding women to teach or lead were addressed to particular historical situations and needed to be read in light of broader texts like Galatians 3.28. I had been taught that the charismatic gifts ended with the death of the last apostle. And my own study led me to conclude that the Bible never said that. I've been taught that the good news of the gospel is that we're forgiven for our sins. And then I started prayer walking in Mechanicsville on Tuesday mornings. And it was my first urban experience. And my friend and I uh, would see lots of drug deals going down and syringes on playgrounds and prostitutes finishing their business for the night. And I started to tutor at Maynard Elementary School. And my children were at Rocky Hill Elementary School at the time, which is about five miles away. It's the same school district. And I began to notice I began to notice the enormous gulf between the two schools. My kids had new textbooks. The kids at Maynard had old ones. My kids had so many assistants helping their classes that the moms, mostly moms at that time, 
had to almost fight to volunteer. The kids at Maynard had oversized classes with one teacher. My kids had a clean building. Maynard was dirty. I began to spend more time with black pastors and reading black theologians, and my understanding of the gospel widened. And I began to think that the good news of the gospel included both salvation from personal sins and hope for the poor. I enrolled in a doctoral program at another seminary, and I studied for four years with a dozen pastors, uh, all from different theological perspectives. And the professors taught very differently. Uh, They would take a topic and they would survey all the different ways believers had understood the topic over the years, and then we would write a paper on which we thought best reflected Scripture. And so I learned that devout, faithful, Bible-loving Christians can disagree on important beliefs. Well, as my faith started to shift and broaden, uh, I began to clash with some other leaders in the church who preferred my earlier approach to doctrine. Uh, And then Bryden was diagnosed with mono. Bryden is our oldest daughter. She was seven, but the mono didn't go away, and her doctor sent her to Children's Hospital. And Dr. Maservi did an ultrasound and found a three-pound cancerous tumor on her kidney. And we had just pledged the fraternity that nobody wants to belong to, children's cancer patients. And the wonderful staff at Children's Hospital Oncology Ward gave Bryden chemo once a week. We spent three to four hours there. We got to know the families. Most of the children overcame their cancer, but several died. And there's nothing like adorable, bald-headed kids with chemo bags hanging from their wheelchair to pose troubling questions about suffering. And I spent many hours in the chapel asking them. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel, but at that time, I, I realized that I'd unconsciously embraced part of it. I had felt that if you worked hard and obeyed God's principles, that he would bless you. And now I was pulling Bryden's hair out in the bathtub on Christmas Eve. We were loved well by many during that season, but some hurt us with their well-intentioned, I'm sure, attempts to care. Uh, Someone sent us a beautifully calligraphed get well card that said Sandy and I lacked faith because we chose chemotherapy over prayer. One leader from our church stood up. I'm sorry, I really didn't. One leader stood on our porch and said, Bryden has cancer because there is sin in your life. We did not believe this, but we were very vulnerable and very upset. And I had often taught the doctrines of grace, but I realized that a virus of shame had also infected our church. Well, shortly after this season, a long-simmering relational conflict with a key leader erupted, and we tried to work it out over many years, but failed. And looking back, I think one of the reasons was because my faith was changing. And this has been a painful lesson for me on my journey with faith and doubt. 
Sometimes when you follow Jesus, you change what you believe, and this can hurt relationships. I went through a dark season of depression. I didn't go to a therapist's office because I was embarrassed. I felt that joy was one of the fruits of the Spirit, and so I was failing because I did not have joy. I eventually emerged from the depression, but I failed to do the hard work of God of finding God in it and had to go back and learn those lessons later. So relational conflict, evolving faith, and spiritual burnout led to a messy end of our time at Fellowship. And today I am good friends with the gifted lead pastor of Fellowship, Rick Dunn, and I can see now that God provided the perfect leader to build upon what he'd started but I could not see that then. I deleted this portion of my story many times this week, but these struggles as a church leader are an important part of my story because we follow Christ in community. Suzanne in her sermons talked about hitting a wall. The biggest wall I've run into in my faith journey is the church the times I've been hurt by the church, and the times when I felt shame because I failed the church. I found it easier to forgive people than institutions. And for seven years, I could not drive by Fellowship Church because I couldn't forgive them. I'm not proud of that, but it's true. Well, the months after we left fellowship were cloudy and gray. I was angry at God. I doubted his goodness and compassion. I felt that he'd betrayed my family. I had no desire to pray or worship or read the Bible. My friend John Wood at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church invited me to come to a Tuesday morning prayer service uh, where a handful of men prayed the liturgy for Holy Communion from the Book of Common Prayer. And then we took communion. And the written prayers and the physicality of the bread and wine connected me to God in ways that Bible reading and private prayer did not at the time. When John Wood invited me to help him plant All Souls Church, he told me that the church's doctrinal statement would be the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. He said he wanted All Souls to be a safe place for Christians and seekers to ask hard questions about faith and not be judged. And that approach was very attractive to me. Uh, I enrolled in a master's degree in history at the University of Tennessee. And I spent a lot of time on the third floor of Hodges Library reading about the history of the early church. And I learned that the first generations of Christian leaders carefully preserved a core summary of truth and passed them down in their preaching and teaching. C.S. Lewis called this mere Christianity. And another name for this core summary of the gospel that we find in the creeds is consensual orthodoxy. The phrase means correct doctrine discerned by the great church councils. And so when we started All Souls in 2004, consensual orthodoxy was our doctrinal statement. In some ways, All Souls saved my soul. I have never doubted the gospel story affirmed in the creeds, but I seem to have had questions about everything else. 
And you did not demand that I offer you the one right answer to every doctrinal and moral question these past 18 years. Instead, you allowed me, along with you, to search for wisdom. I desperately needed all souls at that time in my life to keep following Jesus. And I never would have met Robert and Alfred if we hadn't had all souls. <laughs> I've had three significant seasons of faith struggles in my life. The first was college. The second was after leaving fellowship. The third came during the pandemic. I'm not far enough removed yet to clearly discern what was happening in my soul during that season. I know that I felt inadequate to pastor a virtual church. Gutsy, hot cultural winds blew over the church and I did not know how to adjust the sails. My father's health began <clears throat> to fail and I was sensing an emerging calling towards racial justice and conciliation work. And I felt disoriented and confused. I've met with a friend for breakfast every other week for 30 years. And one morning over a banana pancake, I shared my doubts and fears. And he said, you need to watch Chosen, uh, a Netflix-style TV series on the life of Jesus. I groaned and rolled my eyes. I said, I do not like Christian TV. It's preachy and cheesy and usually poorly done. And he said, this is different. And he was right. Chosen is different. Sandy and I have watched both seasons. And I found myself falling in love with Jesus again and remembering why I'm a Christian. It's because I love Jesus Christ and I want to follow him. That's about it. When I look back, I think there were years when I put my faith in a theological system more than in Jesus himself. I felt spiritually anxious after the discerning years in college and it was so comforting to embrace a comprehensive theological system that had answers to everything. I've since learned that theological systems can teach us many things, but they are lousy gods. They cannot sustain our hopes and dreams. When I have struggled with a theological question or been frustrated with the church or felt like I failed to respond well to a social crisis, it's been very helpful for me to remember that all Jesus said was, follow me. Well, I want to end and get us to dinner. Just a couple of resources that have helped me as I've tried to follow Jesus. The first are spiritual friendships. Uh, I don't think it is wise to share your doubts with just any friend. It might harm them and they might not know how to help you. A spiritual friend is someone who's deeply committed to your spiritual journey. They don't rush to fix or correct you. They listen well and ask good questions. They share a common love for Jesus and help each other follow him. Spiritual friendships are usually long-term and can last a lifetime. And they've been very helpful to me when I'm struggling with my faith. A second resource is reading. There are a number of good books that can be helpful at the right time uh, when we are struggling with our faith. 
there are also a whole lot of terrible ones. And I don't encourage you to just go online and buy a book, which leads us to the third resource, spiritual direction. A spiritual director is someone who helps you pay attention to what God is doing in your life so you can join him. A good spiritual director will know when a good book might be helpful and suggest a few to you. Safe spaces is another resource. Much damage can occur when you ask a question or voice a doubt in an unsafe space. We are trying to be a church that offers the hospitality of safe spaces, places where we can do our work with God and pursue them at our own pace. Personal retreats have been very helpful to me. I usually go to a monastery and these are sacred spaces that have offered hospitality to seekers for hundreds of years. And I find that withdrawing from the pressures of life and having full days with no responsibility other than uh, walking, praying, thinking, reading has been very healing. Therapy, counseling has been very helpful to my journey with faith and doubt. It's different than spiritual direction or spiritual friendship. Faith challenges often are related to unresolved trauma and emotional wounds. When healing happens in a counseling room, we often experience a healthier spirituality as well. And the last resource that's helped me is a dream work. I've met for many years with a person who's trained and gifted at interpreting dreams. And I found dream work one of the most helpful resources in my journey with faith and doubt because God uses dreams to show me where he's at work and what I'm not seeing. And dream work reminds me that God knows me and cares about my life even when I'm less aware of that in my conscious life. Well, Suzanne, Rob, and I met a number of times to prepare for this summer series. And Suzanne said something in one of our early meetings I've not forgotten. We were talking about how many books and podcasts about deconstruction, focus on tearing things down, but not on building things back up. And Suzanne said, remember, the goal of all of this is wisdom. And I thought, oh, that is so true. The goal of the Christian life is not a perfect theological system. I've worked through four. <laughs> the goal is following Jesus, who is wisdom. And looking back, I can see that God used and still uses seasons of doubt in my life to help me know and follow him better. So this is the last thing I want to say. Keep that in mind when you struggle with faith and doubt. You have not done anything wrong. Can I say that again? When you struggle with faith and doubt, you have not done anything wrong. This is simply another class we all must take in the school of discipleship. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. We're all here tonight in some way or another because we want to follow you or at least learn more about what that would mean. It can get so hard sometimes. 
And sometimes we try to do it in community because that's what you did and then we bang each other up a bit and it's even harder. Lord, I thank you for this church. I, I was not joking. I don't know where I'd be without all souls. I'm so thankful for the, the open space here. And Lord, thank you for the table. Thank you for the bread and the wine, the ancient prayers, the ancient liturgy, the way you connect with us even when we can't do it on our own. Lord, now we're going to have a little picnic. We're trying to reconnect as a little family. Just pray you'd be present in every child's scream and giggle and footstep and all the other good conversations tonight. Come and meet us now, we pray. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord.